Welcome to this episode of Horrific History and Hauntings. I'm Beth. And I'm Ramey. We're your hosts, here to talk about the stories that the history books ignore. From horrific epidemics and ghostly hauntings to the catastrophes and tragic events that have sickened humanity. Yes. I know what we're talking about today, because... We've already done part one. Yeah. Do we have a thing in history that happened today, though? Yes. We're recording on January 28th, and during World War I in 1915, January 28th, the captain of a German cruiser commanded the sinking of the American merchant ship called William P. Fry. That's unfortunate, I suppose. Why? I mean, I guess it was taking supplies somewhere they didn't want it to go. Yeah, probably. Then in 1958, on January 28th, a 19-year-old named Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugit, or Fugit? Not sure how that one's pronounced. I don't know. They murdered a Lincoln businessman and his wife and their maid in Nebraska during a week-long crime spree that ended with a total of 11 deaths. You know, I think I heard about this. It might have been on Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV time. I have not heard of this that I know of. If I did, did I forgot mov- about it. They might have made a movie about they've it. They've made a few movies. That yeah. was in the article. Yes. Okay. Then this is the one they talked about. Yeah. yeah. They've made a couple movies, I believe. In January 28th, 1986, at 11.38 p.m., the, what was the name of that shuttle? Challenger? Yeah. The Challenger launched with. Christina, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. She was the teacher. Oh, She was aiming to be the first civilian in space. And all of her students were watching. And then 73 seconds later, the shuttle tragically broke apart, pretty much exploded, leading to the loss of all seven crew members. Ah, that's awful. Yeah. President Ronald Reagan set up a special commission to investigate the Challenger disaster, and they found that a failed O-ring seal in a solid fuel rocket caused the tragedy due to cold temperatures at launch. And I also heard, not from this particular source, but a different one, that they were warned about that, but they didn't want to... Delay the launch? Yeah, because it would have been delayed when her students wouldn't have been watching. It wouldn't have been a school day. Oh no, they did it for the children and then... And then they watched their teacher explode. How do they say, what do they say about that, I wonder? How do they handle that? The school counselor is down the hall to the left. I don't know, man. I don't know. That's a horrible situation. That's got to be traumatic. Now, we're going to continue our lovely tale about the toolbox killers, Roy Norris and Lawrence Becker. We should also say that this is part to of a yes, sample part two. for what will be coming in this subs- uh, subscribers, first subscribers later. Yeah. If you subscribe, you'll get these longer form series like this. And the standard show that we normally do will still be a thing. It'll just be, that'll be, if you want to subscribe and get longer form other stuff, then it'll be there for you. Mm-hmm. The subscriptions but, ain't up yet either. So don't yeah. try hunting for it and subscribing because it won't be us. It'll be, <laughs> I think, two or three more weeks. Yeah. Before that happens. It'll be after this finishes and we start recording the series. Yeah. Then there'll be tears you could subscribe to and get different things. But we'll, we wanted to cover that first before we went into the actual show. We try, we try to warn everybody, tell them that this is what, don't expect the show to stop the free ones anyway, because we're, oh, gonna no, we're going. still going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say this is going to be a rough one. It's got a content warning, trigger warning. This is not suitable for children or sensitive individuals. It mentions torture and sexual assault that involve teenage girls. 
So that warning might have come a little bit late. We just talked about a group of students watching their teacher explode. Well, that's this one's more detailed in its <sighs> nature. Okay. So I mean, we just and also the that was on the news. Everybody saw it. I mean, this was on the news too. <laughs> oh well, yeah, true. There's also the part that I'm going to read that I will give another trigger warning to. Oh, uh, the one I, you warned us about last week. Yeah. Starting with the trials. Prosecutors faced the challenge of proving that the missing victims had indeed been murdered by Bittaker and Norris. Norris and Bittaker have been caught, and Norris has began to talk more in his confessions, and now we're going into the trials. Yes. They explain what they might have done for listeners who, for some reason, have just popped in on this episode. You should definitely go check out part one. If you haven't listened to it yet, then it this would make a lot more sense. But Norris and Bittaker got together in jail. They found each other, became friends, and came up with a plan to abduct and rape women. and Torture. Torture them and murder them in horrific ways. That was literally part of the plan, the torture. Yes, the torture was part of the plan. And then they disposed of one of their victims in a lawn instead of in the mountains where they had planned to dispose of them so that animals and such would make it harder for the bodies to be found. That just reeks of wanting to get caught. Yeah, it does. And so this body was found and then... I want to say it was Norris was the one that blabbed his mouth to one of his old jail mates, prison mates, and the prison mate went to the police after the body was found and said, hey, this sounds like one of my old buddies that told me he did this, and he explained it in great detail, and it sounds right. Then the police began to watch them, and they got caught, As they, and they found evidence, Yeah, which I'll go into more in this episode. So, trials. The prosecutors faced the challenge of proving that the missing victims had indeed been murdered by Bittaker and Norris. Norris's trial was the first, and due to his plea deal, it was over fairly quickly. Bittaker refused to plead guilty. It was during his trial that the disturbing details of their actions became public knowledge. Norris's bail was set at $10,000, and Bittaker was denied bail. I can't believe they agreed to bail him at all. Yeah. I guess. But still, I feel like it definitely should have been a lot more. Or none at all. Well, well, yeah, none at all would have been the plus, but I guess they were trying to find a way to get him to tell everything. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not part of the law. I don't know. A plea bargain was extended to Norris within a month of being charged based on his testimony against Bittaker. The prosecution, in exchange for his testimony against Bittaker, offered... Norris a deal where they wouldn't pursue the death penalty or life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He did seem like the type to hop out of there pretty quick. Yeah. It happened quite often to him, didn't it? Was he the one? I think they both did. I mean, yeah, they did. But one of them was really in and out, like uh, I think, in and then out really quickly. Yeah, I think that one was Bitteker, but Norris also, I want to say, was in and out and in and out and let go a lot. But his crimes were sexually violent to begin with, so I don't know why that was the way they did it. I guess they really just needed his testimony, too. Yeah. Obviously, Norris agreed to this and supported the narrative that Bittaker was the primary perpetrator and that he participated in the crimes out of fear of Bittaker. 
Oh, now come on. <laughs> and he was the one who was already doing it before he got caught. Yeah. I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. And they just, just have to just agree nice. to believe him because it's part of the deal. Yep. Yep, we believe you. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't lie to us. <laughs> oh. No. Yeah. I'd make Bunch him of get, bullshit. <laughs> he'd have to drive a Volkswagen from now on. No more vans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of, Ted Bundy drove a Volkswagen bug. Oh. Well, it'd be harder for this guy, though. <laughs> March 18th, 1980, Norris pleaded guilty to four counts of... First-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, one count of robbery, and two counts of rape. Who'd they rob? I don't know. I bet it was for the necklaces. I don't I, I really don't know, because the whole time I didn't see anything Wasn't there necklaces or, or something kept? Bracelets? Necklaces? From the victims, yeah. yes. Then I'd, I'd, maybe that was it. I don't know. Maybe. Sentencing was delayed until May 7th to allow for the completion of necessary assessments. The probation officer evaluated Norris for the court to be informed about the potential for his future parole. During this testimony, the officer revealed that Norris consistently blamed Bideker for the torture of the victims and that he expressed the sexual intercourse wasn't the main focus of his assaults and rapes exactly what it was i don't know why he said sexual intercourse it was rape it was his probation officer saying that his yes okay it makes sense for his lawyer to say that but not his probation officer i don't know instead he got satisfaction from dominating women and he said that norris displayed no remorse or compassion for the injuries and abuse inflicted on the victims the probation officer's assessment characterized norris as compulsive and inflicting pain and described him as an extreme sociopath with a depraved and grotesque behavior pattern beyond rehabilitation. I'd like to think that people can change, but this one no. doesn't sound like No, he's good he at had it. plenty of chances in prison before this. When he was out of prison, he was doing pretty good until they got in touch again, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, both both of, them were, of them were. were doing pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Aside from the fact that Bitteker was planning all of it. And yeah. driving around, figuring things out. So he went on the long drive and came back with a bad plan. Yeah. Norris received a sentence of 45 years to life with the possibility of parole. Highly unlikely. Which was part of their plan. I, I guess we'll figure or it out. Or their deal, I guess. It hasn't been 45 years, has it? Yeah, it's been over 45 years. Am I, I don't remember when this happened. Well, just keep listening. We'll get there. Now, going on to Bitteker's trial. This one lasted longer because he didn't plea to anything. Mm-hmm. January 19th, 1981, Bitteker's trial commenced in Torrance, California. Judge Thomas Fredericks was the one to oversee the case. And on January 22nd, Norris took the stand and initiated his testimony against Bitteker. He explained their meeting in prison at the California Men's Colony, explained how they devised <laughs> that name again. <laughs> I feel like it should be named something else. That just, it doesn't sound. Prisony to me. No, it sounds like it a sounds YMCA. Like a club. Yeah, like I said, it sounds like a uh, old timey YMCA. <laughs> Just where they go to smoke cigars and have a brandy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe play some pool. I don't know. The Diogenes Club. <laughs> he explained how they devised the plan to abduct, rape, and murder the girls, and attempting to abduct and rape a girl alone in June 1979, but that he failed. They then decided to only work together. After his failed attempt. Smart, I guess, in a terrible way. What would have been smarter is not doing all this in the first place. 
together or alone. They play D&D. They knew not to split the party. Yeah. Norris provided detailed accounts of each rape, attempted abductions, and the five murders they committed. He presented them in chronological order as well. Quite a man of detail. Yeah. He recounted the difficulty he faced in strangling Lucinda Schaefer and how Bittaker had to use a coat hanger to finish the act and where they threw her body. During the murder of Andrea Hall, Norris recalled that Bittaker instructed him to leave and get alcohol from the store and that when Norris returned, Bittaker had already killed her and was holding pictures of her face after informing her of his intent to kill her. He explained how they held Gilliam and Lamp captive for over 24 hours and how Bittaker killed Gilliam and both were involved in Lamp's murder. Bittaker strangled her while Norris bashed her in the head with a sledgehammer. Oh, I forgot about that one. And I want to say she was 13 or 15. Mm-hmm. Not sure. When questioned about the torture of Ledford, Norris explained that Bittaker insisted he be the one to kill her because Bittaker reasoned that Norris hadn't killed any of the others. So Norris agreed to this. Yeah. And Norris explained how he strangled her using the wire hanger and pliers that Bittaker had used on previous victims, Lamp and Shaver. Norris said he was the one who dumped Ledford's body on the lawn while Bittaker remained in the van. I thought one of them might have done it without the other knowing. Oh, no, they both knew. Hmm, Apparently. I don't know if they were just lazy or if, as you said before, they, in the back of their heads, wanted to get caught or some sort of recognition. Maybe. Whatever. I I don't know. (laughs) Numerous witnesses during the trial confirmed that Bittaker had shown them the same photos found in the motel room of the murdered women. Christina Drail, I believe is how you say her last name, was a 17-year-old that was staying at the motel that Bittaker stayed in. And she stated that Bittaker showed her photographs of Gilliam and four other girls and that he told her, quote, the girls I get won't talk anymore. I don't see how that's a good idea, not only because you're likely to get caught, but also this is a teenage girl as well who you is fitting the profile of who you are trying to abduct and do all this horrible thing to. How do you think? Was he involved with this girl? I mean, to be showing things like that, he had to be. I don't know. A lot of people overlook stuff if someone's supplying them drugs. Which one of them supplied drugs to people? I forgot. Both. Okay, then yeah, the girls just, <laughs> yeah, if they were in uh, drugs at the moment, they just overlooked that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the people, from what I understand, at that motel were into that. Uh, well, Or they were runaways or things like that. Yeah. On another occasion, she heard a tape, presumably the recording of Gilliam's rape, played uh-huh. by Bittaker. And she didn't report it. No. Because that's her drugs. Yeah. That's what we're, yeah. That's what I mean by overlook. They might still can not approve, but they're not going to say anything. Or maybe she was afraid. Oh, of course, really, yeah. That could have been a thing. Maybe she was afraid that what she was doing, perhaps. I don't know if she was doing anything at all, to be honest, but... Maybe she was afraid she would get accused of something and end up getting in trouble. Yeah. I really don't know. One of those situations you don't know. It's just odd. Yeah. Richard Dryberg, another resident at the Scott Motel, testified in exchange for the dismissal of a charge of possession of an explosive. What? <laughs> just dismissal. Yeah. We'll overlook this. Or maybe a grenade. Who knows? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> he mentioned that... <laughs> <laughs> These people, the, the, the people they know. Yeah. He mentioned that uh, 
Bitteker showed him nude photographs of the victims and that the name Cindy was mentioned. He said Bitteker told him that Cindy had been killed. And when shown a picture of Lucinda Schaefer, Dryberg identified her as one of the girls in the photographs he had seen. He also testified that Bitteker told him about the kidnapping and killing of two girls on one occasion. And although he incorrectly identified Schaefer as one of them, he did correctly identify a photograph of Gilliam. An inmate who knew Bitteker named Lloyd Carlos Douglas testified that Bitteker provided him with detailed information about the abduction of Gilliam and Lamp. The rape and torture of Gilliam, the murder of both girls, and Norris did not mention any of the torture of Gilliam in his testimony, so Lloyd Douglas wouldn't have known this information from that. According to Douglas, Bitteker described pinching Gilliam's legs and breasts with vice grip pliers and eventually tearing off her nipple. Then he thrust an ice pick through her breast and twisted it before pushing the ice pick through her ear. Ah, I do remember that part. Which he was which was said that caused her to scream and fall dead. Well, that would have do it. Yeah. Bitteker also informed Douglas that he tortured Ledford by pulling on her genitals and breasts with the vice grip pliers and attempted to beat her breasts back into her chest with his fists. I don't know how he thought that was going to work. He clearly never went to any kind of anatomy school. No. That doesn't make any sense. What was going through your head? And he's supposed to be the intelligent one, too. He just done it because he wanted to see if it'd work, I guess. Nobody's ever tried. It's hard to tell people like that what they're thinking. David Lambert, who shared a cell with Bitteker, testified that at Bitteker's request, he drew a picture of a girl on the cell wall. And Bitteker mentioned that it looked like Cindy and asked Lambert to add a coat hanger and pliers to the picture. These people just couldn't keep their mouth shut. No, no, they can't. (laughs) Bitteker then signed it as Pliers Bitteker. He wanted to start his own toolbox killer nickname kind of thing, but it didn't catch on to it. Yeah. Um, If he was in jail when this is all Well, later on, there was a transcript of one of the interviews that Bitteker went through. Mm -hmm. And I want to say it was for some magazine. I have little bits and pieces, but I didn't put it all in here. But apparently the guards call him it was either pliers bitteker or toolbox bitteker this was a gel nickname derived from his stories of torturing women with pliers and he signed autographs for other prisoners using the nickname including one that said hitchhikers welcome females especially oh and then another one he's found a way to make extra foods and monies in jail yeah signatures oh just it it gets better later on when it comes to that, another one said, Norris did it. Ah, uh, but now, uh, you, sir, you need to, <laughs> you need to get your story straight. First of all, it wasn't just Norris. Yes, he was involved, but uh, it, it should have been, we both did it. We're trash. The dastardly duo. Oh, <laughs> the colonial couple. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh. They would have been so mad because I want to say that Norris was homophobic if Bitteker was telling the truth about him in that interview. Bitteker, however, was, I want to say, bisexual, but he couldn't tell Norris. Bitteker also shared with David Lambert details of his abduction of two girls on one occasion, another girl on Halloween night, which coincided with Ledford's murder. Bitteker's defense team attempted to shift the blame onto Norris by asserting that Bitteker only knew about the murders because Norris informed him before 
his arrest. He claimed that Norris told him he killed the victims after they both engaged in sexual intercourse with them. How consensual. Yeah, of course. I think they forgot how to say the word rape or sexual assault. Don't forget, it's his defense team (laughs) saying this. They said that it implied he'd done bad things. Yeah, true. They're doing their jobs. Yeah. (laughs) In an attempt to support his claim, a friend of Norris's, Richard Schutman, was brought forward to testify. Schutman stated that Norris had frequently expressed his desire to rape young women, emphasizing that the look of shock and fear on the victim's face particularly aroused him. And on the other hand, Bittaker rarely discussed sex with Schutman. Because he was just a private type. I don't mean he didn't. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good try, I guess. Mm -hmm. That's all I got to say. And then the defense team brought attention to the pictures and the expression on Andrea Hall's face. February 5th, 1981, Bittaker took the stand to testify on his own behalf. He denied any involvement in the kidnapping and murder of Schaefer, and he claimed he had a, a consensual agreement with Andrea Hall for sex, where she w- agreed to do sexual activities with him for $200, as well as pose for the pictures. He said they went to the San Gabriel Mountains together, and that he returned alone because he instructed her to find her own way back home. That $200 better go a long way towards a cab. Yeah. <laughs> That's rude, but what you actually did to her was way worse. Yeah. Either way, shitty person. Bittaker claimed that Gilliam agreed to pose for pictures and engage in sexual activities with him in exchange for money as well. According to him, the last time he saw the two girls, they were in the van with Norris. When questioned about the audio tape of Shirley, Lefford, the court had listened to earlier, Bittaker claimed that she screamed willingly and theatrically. That was a good word for it. I wonder how well those lawyers worked on that. Or was he the was he the smart one? I can't remember. Yeah, Bittaker's supposed to oh, be the smart okay, one. Okay, okay. Supposed to be. And maybe there's a word he knew on his own. Maybe. He denied that she had ever actually been tortured, and he claimed that Ledford had been left alone with Norris as well. Just, why do you keep leaving these girls with Norris if, <laughs> if they keep vanishing? Every time we do this, I have to pay another $200. Yeah. Uh, not that it's true, but that would be my question. Bittaker's trial extended for over three weeks. The closing arguments were presented on February 10th. The prosecutor, Stephen Kay, addressed the court, expressing regret that he could only seek the death penalty. And he pointed out that there was no legal way to ensure Bittaker experienced the same torture and suffering he had inflicted on the murdered girls. While holding up pictures of the victims, Kay stated, Quote, this case was one of the most shocking, brutal cases in the history of American crime. If the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, when will it ever be? They say that, but look at the other guy. Just Yeah. In the defense team's closing argument, they urged the jury to disregard Norris's testimony and insisted that Norris was the murderer, not Bittaker. They characterized the trial as a, quote, bloodlust and criticized the prosecution's repeated emphasis on the gory details of each murder. (laughs) The whole thing was gory. What do you expect them to do? They made it gory. As part of the trial, they have to... Discuss the details. Yeah. The defense also highlighted that Bittaker's previous crimes were nonviolent. That part was true. Fair enough. Aside from stabbing a store clerk. They closed by stating that there was insufficient evidence to prove Bittaker was the killer. As well, the jury deliberated for 
three days. And February 17th, Bittaker was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, non-rape charges, one charge of sodomy, two charges of forcible oral copulation, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. February 19th, the jury commenced deliberations on the appropriate sentence. This took only one and a half hours to reach a decision. I'd say so. And Bittaker was sentenced to death. He displayed no emotion whatsoever when the verdict was read. He knew it was coming. Yeah. I don't blame the man for being furious. Your friend turned on you. Yeah. They both should have. At least life with no parole. March 24th, the formal sentencing took place, and Judge Fredericks imposed an alternate sentence of 199 years and four months in case Bittaker's death penalty was ever changed to life. This was to minimize any possibility of Bittaker being released. Ah, smart. He threw the book at him. Mm-hmm. Bittaker appealed, alleging procedural errors in the, his arrest and conviction. He raised concerns about the validity of the warrants authorizing the police to search his room in the van. Additionally, he questioned the dismissal of a woman who was initially hired by the defense during the trial to advise on matters related to the jury's views on the death penalty. And June 22, 1989, Bittaker's appeal was dismissed because the court deemed the procedural errors as minor and stating that the overwhelming evidence against Bittaker rendered these errors insignificant to the trial, conviction, and sentence. There was graphic evidence enough to, I think they made the right decision. Going into more detail for the evidence, the Polaroid pictures, the police found they were concerned that the girls in the 500 Polaroid pictures could possibly be more victims other than the five that they already knew about. They succeeded in finding 60 of these young women in the photos alive. Yeah. Sadly, 19 are still missing and on the list as missing people. Looks like they wouldn't be on that list after this trial. Nobody. They really can't prove anything. Like the first victim, she was never found. So she's still, even though they admitted to murdering her, she's still on the missing persons list. She'll be there forever. Yeah. One of the photographs caught their attention. It was a young woman who resembled Hall Lamp and Gilliam. Despite thorough investigation, her identity is still unknown, and authorities suspect she may be another victim of Bittaker and Norris. She didn't match any of the missing persons reports, though. Huh. I wonder where she was from. I don't know, but during this time that Bittaker and Norris was committing these crimes, many young girls went missing and were never reported, especially sex workers and runaways. Yeah. Now we're going to talk about the disturbing audio recording of the torture and murder of Shirley Ledford. The audio recording of Shirley Ledford's torture and murder was found by police in the van, and it lasted about 17 minutes. During Norris's testimony, he mentioned that Bittaker frequently played the tape while driving around in the van for weeks, and that Bittaker found this recording humorous. Before playing the tape in court, prosecutor Stephen Kay warned, quote, For those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. With over 100 people in the courtroom, many cried as the tape played, including the jury. Some audience members left before it had even finished, and one of the sources that I've said that the court sketch artist was one of those who ran out of the room crying. I'm not going to say all of it, but I'm going to imply what's being said in some parts. 
Bittaker was smiling during the tape's presentation at his trial, which was probably not a in his great best interest. idea. Yeah. <laughs> Following the tape, a recess was called to allow people to calm down, and Prosecutor Stephen Kay spoke to reporters outside during this time. He tearfully told them, quote, Everybody who has heard the tape has had it affect their lives. I just picture those girls, how alone they were when they died. Then when the reporters asked him if it was appropriate to play the tape in front of everyone in the courtroom, he replied, quote, You're darn right it should have been. The jury needs to know what these guys did. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. In 1990, during the production of the movie Silence of the Lambs, actor Scott Glenn, set to portray FBI profiler Jack Crawford, consulted with John Douglas for research, and Douglas provided insight into the character and the setting. He showed some items he had encountered among them. He had encountered among them was the tape recording of Shirley Ledford. After listening to the tape, Scott Glenn left Douglas's office in tears, expressing, quote, I had no idea there were people out there who could do anything like this. This experience led him to reconsider his stance on the death penalty. He changed his mind after being opposed to it previously. I'm opposed to it because I know that people are not infallible and they can be mistakes made. Yeah. Now we're getting to that god-awful transcript of the audio recording. And trigger warning, the following transcript details extremely brutal, horrible, and disturbing moments of Shirley Ledford being tortured, sexually assaulted, and murdered. Yeah, I cannot find the words to describe how disgusting and horrific this transcript is. As I mentioned before, some parts I'm not even going to go into um, may hint at what is happening during that time, but I'm not going to actually read off Mm -hmm. that part. If you choose to listen to this part, do not allow children or sensitive individuals to be in hearing range. It will stick with you forever. As I edit this afterwards, I won't be able to uh, easily give you a timestamp of when to skip to. So if you need to stop, now's the time. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry for (laughs) this. Also, I'm going to give you the title of the book. If you do decide for some reason you want to read this full transcript, it is on Kindle Unlimited, The Toolbox Killers, A Deadly Rape, Torture, and Murder Duo. It's the Serial Killer Books, Volume 3 by Rebecca Lowe and Jack Rosewood. If you decide you want to read the whole thing, because it's actually got a lot more information as well. I would suggest you read it. Here we go. Bitteker. Slapping can be heard. Say something, girl. Huh? Huh? Ledford. What do you want me to say? Bitteker, apparently with hearing problems. Huh? Huh? Say something, girl. Don't you hit me. Huh? Huh? Ledford then begins to scream. Bitteker, say something. Come on. You can scream louder than that. Can't you? Huh? What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Then apparently you can hear slapping sounds. And then Ledford screaming. Oh no. Bitteker, what's the matter? Huh? What's with all the huhs? That irritated me. It does get irking, doesn't it? (laughs) As I sit here and have it blasted in my ears. You want to try again? Huh? Oh, no, he did. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Ledford. Oh, no, don't touch me. No, don't touch me. No, 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 no. And just saying, obviously, I'm not putting that much 
character and enthusiasm into reading this transcript because I don't want to. That's inappropriate. It's just my personal opinion. Bittaker. Want to try again? Ledford. No, 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 no. At this point, Shirley was sobbing while pleading with Bittaker to stop touching her. Bittaker. Roll over. Ledford. No, don't touch me. Bittaker. Slapping Shirley. Start getting to work, girl. Ledford. Don't touch me. Bittaker. Start getting to work, girl. Ledford. Now crying. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. She might have been crying before, but that's what the transcript said. Bittaker. Get to work, girl. Ledford. Don't touch me. He likes repeating himself. (laughs) I don't know if he likes hearing her or himself more because it just sounds to me like he likes hearing himself talk. He knows he's recording it, so yes. Bittaker, roll over. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Roll over. Ledford's crying. Bittaker, come on, come on, come on. What are you doing? What are you doing? Ledford, huh? Bittaker, what are you doing? Ledford, I'm not doing anything. I'm trying to do what you wanted me to do. I'm not comfortable saying exactly what he said during this time. Eventually, he beats and tortures her, forces her to beg for what he wants. Oh, dear. Yeah. Bittaker, laughing at this time, another area I'm skipping past of what he says, but in this particular part at the end, it says, if it hurts any time you want to scream, go ahead and scream. We are verging on a smutty podcast here. It's awful. Yeah. Ledford screams oh no and Bittaker says scream baby go ahead and scream scream baby it's clear in the recording that Bittaker is assaulting Shirley multiple high-pitched screams then banging sounds can be heard that are likely the result of Shirley's thrashing around in the van in agony Ledford screams my god please stop it Bittaker is the recorder going Norris yeah Bittaker scream some baby Ledford I can't. Bittaker, scream some more, baby. Come, baby. Come on. Nobody is going to hurt you. Yes, you are, you fucking sack of shit. Turn over and talk to me nice. Love me. Why the fuck would anybody love you? Ever. Ever. Yeah. You are not worthy of any kindness, love, anybody at all being even nice to you. You don't deserve it. Okay. This is another section that I'm not comfortable reading aloud. Bittaker asked Shirley if she wanted him to perform the next thing he did to her, and her screams were heard on the tape. Bittaker, stop screaming at me. Come on, talk to me. He had just told her to scream all she wanted. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, I think he liked hearing the sound of his own voice, no matter how ignorant he sounded. Skipping a good portion of this transcript about Bittaker doing disgusting things and forcing her to say disgusting things. And it's mostly just repeating over and over again. Bittaker is the recorder going? Norris. What? Bittaker is the recorder going? Norris. Yeah. Ledford can be heard sobbing. Oh no, 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 oh no. Accompanied by additional banging sounds. And then Bittaker and Norris exchange positions with Bittaker taking the wheel and Norris didn't rape Shirley. Norris, make noise there, girl. Go ahead and scream or I'll make you scream. Ledford, pleading, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Norris, oh yeah, Ledford screams. Norris, keep it up, girl. Ledford screams. Norris, till I say stop, Ledford screams. The tape 
captured moaning and crying along with noises of Norris retrieving a sledgehammer from the toolbox. Ledford's screams intensifies. Norris forcibly struck the sledgehammer into her elbow. Ledford can be heard screaming, you broke it. And then Norris says, I barely hit it. I barely hit it with a fucking sledgehammer. Like you said, they just like to hear their own voices. Yeah. It's just cringy. And I don't even understand why, because I still sometimes cringe at hearing my own voice when I listen to my own podcast. Oh, I edit and I never listen to it again. <laughs> Simple. That's how I fix that. I like to listen to it at least once just to see if it's good or not. Not that there's much we well, can do be a if lot it's of not. Ed- a lot of editing in this one, not just take out the, the jibber-jabber, but I'll have to edit some of this stuff out. Otherwise, YouTube will just take the video down completely. Yeah. Ledford pleads and sobs, don't hit me again. Norris says, oh, yeah. And then the sound of the sledgehammer being lifted from the van floor is heard. Ledford screams, no, 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 no. And then sounds of bludgeoning are make it clear with the repeated high-pitched screams that surely continues to scream no, Norris proceeds to strike her elbow 25 more times, causing multiple fractures. Her screams follow each strike, and although she attempts to speak, her words are not understandable. Uh, then he probably didn't just hit her in the elbow. Hmm. Or she's in a lot of pain and traumatized oh, and no. shock. Norris, how's that, Bittaker? What's going on? Norris, I was just beating her on the elbow with a sledgehammer. Sorry, with a hammer. He didn't say sledgehammer. Then it might have just been a hammer. It might have just been a hammer, and they said it was a sledgehammer. But he said, just hammer. Either way, Bittaker, ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> That's what you have to say, ah. I shouldn't laugh during this. <laughs> I would have had a terrible time oh, in I'm court. I'm just beating her in the elbow with a hammer. Ah. Oh. Because I would laugh well, at the that? worst times. Because that's how I handle stress. I laugh about it. I get in trouble all the time in school for it. So hearing these these little quirks of awkward moments occasionally in between it, between the two men, is just... Yeah, I get it. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh. Huh? Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Like they I said, they like to hear I their own they voices. they stood in the mirror and then practiced what they would say. And then we as podcasters had to learn not to say... Um, uh, and, uh, and I still do sometimes. And I have to cut it, most of them out. Ledford screamed as Norris once again struck her repeatedly on the elbow with the hammer. And Shirley Ledford's last words were, do it, just kill me. And that's when they turned the tape off. Huh. Like they aren't going to get in trouble for not recording that part. I don't think they thought they were going to get caught. That's what I say before. You keep evidence like this. And that was some very clear evidence. They're messed up individuals. Yeah. I know other true crime podcasts like Christopher and Eric and all of them like to cover things like this. I have a feeling they didn't cover this one for a reason. Uh, my favorite one didn't cover this either. They they cover some gnarly ones we'll as well. We'll have to cut out a lot of what we have said. Just some of that will not go on YouTube and I'm not about to risk my YouTube account for it. Yeah. Which is fine. We didn't already cut some of it out. We'll just have to cut out other parts. If you want to hear it, it's obviously in the book or read it. Or if you buy the audiobook, you can listen to it. We can hear somebody well, else say, huh, all the time. How about for paid subscribers when we finally do that? Because if you're a paid subscriber, it doesn't go on YouTube, right? No. Okay. Well, how about paid subscribers can get the uncut version? Okay. That way, YouTube won't be a bitch, which I could understand why YouTube wouldn't want this. I, yeah, I can mark it as explicit and all that, but uh, that won't stop them from Yeah, th- this is just too much. It really is. 
Um, so I can understand why they would not want that. But um, whenever we do the subscribing thing, we'll say there's going to be a cut version. But the more, what's a good way to say, horrible details mm-hmm. can be found later. And uh, sorry for the trauma. Also, uh, we have a new email up you can contact us on. It's You can also use the old one. Oh, we're not done. I know, but I want to tell them why we're talking about this. Oh. Uh, there's a the new link in the description. It will let you email us both with one email or just Beth with one email. Choose whichever one you like. The Horrific History and Hauntings goes straight to Beth. The Gruesome Gaming Group one goes to me. So let us know if you're interested in the subscription, um, the kind of things you might like to see, like to see. And if you would like me to just stop editing out the random stuff for the longer form podcasts. I, I can do that if you like, but it's up to everyone else. I don't think you want to hear all the banter in um, between. Um, <laughs> no, there ain't a lot as many ums as I make it. Is it we start? <laughs> I, I, not as many of those either. I've set the mics up better, but there is a lot of like banter in between. If you'd like to hear us say that stuff, let us know. If not, I'll keep editing it out unless I get a few emails saying otherwise. But yeah, the the stuff that I guess you won't know is cut out until you subscribe, just for letting it upload sake. Uh, it will be on the subscription version just because that's the only way I'll be able to put it up without getting it taken down. Yeah. Okay. Go on. Tell us more. Going into a while, Bittaker and Norris are back in prison. They were sent to separate prisons this time. Oh, good. And even if they hadn't been, they would have been kept apart. Yeah. I would sense another murder in the future. Yeah. Uh, following their convictions, Bittaker and Norris took different paths. Norris didn't cause trouble and kept a low profile. This was probably because he didn't want to risk losing his possibility of parole one day. He seems good at it anyway. Yeah. That's how he always kept getting out, wasn't it? Um, I really don't know. Probably. While awaiting an execution on death row, Bittaker filed numerous appeals and claims against many people, including the warden of the prison. He participated in several interviews as well and gladly answered moronic people considered fan mail from his supporters. Moronic. That's the word I'm looking for, right? Why would you be a fan of someone like this. Between a sentencing in 1981 to 1995, Bittaker had filed over 40 legal actions. Among his numerous claims, Bittaker even filed a complaint alleging cruel and unusual punishment. You don't want to know why? What this was over? Why? This cruel and unusual punishment? Cold food? It was over a broken cookie on his tray. Oh, it was even worse than You're cold. lucky you got a damn cookie. You were a bad... Only... Cookie should be a reward. You don't deserve a reward. Somebody needs to take your damn broken cookie away. Mm, you get bread and butter. With no Let them eat cake. <laughs> Moldy cake. A couple of theories as to why he filed so many complaints was that he was bored. Uh, <laughs> let's hope so. A desire for control and manipulation because many serial killers with high IQs feel the need to be in control constantly. Mm. I'm wondering if that's even an IQ thing or, or if. Many of them just in general want that. Or maybe he was trying to to delay his execution somehow by doing this. After years of being bombarded with Bittaker's ridiculous appeals or legal actions, the courts had had enough and they invoked the concept of vexatious litigation. Stop trying to vex us with all your numerous lawsuits, sir. It's, I didn't know what it was. So I looked it up. It's a legal mechanism to stop individuals who misuse the legal system for harassment or foolish claims. Bittaker's ability to file lawsuits and appeals became restricted, and it 
they required prior approval from a judge or a lawyer from that point forward. And I'm assuming they probably stopped at that point. Mm. He was sent to San Quentin, by the way. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, San Quentin death row, which I'm going to talk a little bit about. It's located in San Francisco, as most probably know. San Quentin was opened in 1854. It's the oldest operating prison facility in California. And there was a fun little fact I learned while looking into this. During the gold rush, California's first official prison was a ship called Waban, W-A-B-A-N. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It was used to house prisoners from 1851 to 1854 when San Quentin was built and replaced it. And the prisoners were kept in harsh conditions, poor sanitation, and exposure to the elements. It doesn't sound like a great place. No, I'm, it was a temporary thing. Well, how many people could possibly fit on it? And it said that the prisoners, some of the prisoners, also helped to build San Quentin. Anything to get off the ship. Yeah, just a fun little fact. San Quentin State Prison is the only correctional facility in California with a death row housing unit. California still has a death row. Yes, but their executions are on hold. Initially, hangings were used to carry out a death sentence. In 1942, the gas chamber became the primary method, which was replaced in 1996 with lethal injection. 2006, California's executions were temporarily stopped. And as far as I know, they still are. And this is because of legal challenges. And one source said there was a lack of available drugs necessary for lethal injections, but I really don't know. That's why the Alabama did the same thing. They, they just switched to a different source, though. Mm. Well, I don't know if that's California's thing or if it just happened to mix Alabama and California together. Well, the pharmaceutical companies that were making these things were getting a lot of flack for for, yeah. for charging too much to cure people and then charging the state too much to kill people. <laughs> um, not just that, they were getting a lot of flack for killing people pretty much. So they stopped providing them lethal drugs and now the states had to figure out what else to do. Hmm. Well, the cells in San Quentin are barely five paces long and two wide, and they contain a sink and toilet, which causes them to be more cramped. They serve as the basic living space, uh, sleeping, eating, bathroom. Everything you needed to keep you alive for a few years. Alive, but not happy. Death row inmates at San Quentin can also earn limited privileges through good behavior. These include access to TV, CD players, acoustic guitars, as long as they don't disturb others with the noise. Guitar shouldn't be a thing then. And I feel like that's a can be used as a weapon. I don't think it should be. You can bop somebody with that. Bop, bop, bop. I've played many a bar to get Well, do I that. guess it wouldn't sound like bop. Ting, 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 maybe. Yeah. Well-behaved death row inmates may also spend six hours a day in the yard for fresh air. The use of exercise equipment and basketball is out there. The alternative spaces that prioritize safety are available for inmates who are not allowed to socialize. These are cages measuring 10 feet by 4 feet in the outside area. We need to do a whole podcast about prisons. Yeah. It'd be a series. It's on my list. It'd be a huge series, actually. It would. Because we got to decide if we're going to include political prisons in places like parts of Cuba and stuff like that. I've got a few prisons and jails on my list, but there's many more that need to be added. I just kind of get the ideas. And, and some of those can involve hauntings. Down. Can involve what? Hauntings. I think that's what most of mine have on my list. Bittaker's attempts to profit from his crimes made him an unpopular inmate in San Quentin. Listen to this, though. He tried selling autographed autopsy reports of his victims. My question is, why did he have those? Uh, the and state even has better- to hand over all evidence to the... Criminal? 
the uh, one who did it? To both the lawyer and the lawyer can hand it to him. To that his... should not be allowed. Inmate Michael Hunter wrote an article in 1995 for the Orange County Magazine, and it said, quote, Almost without exception, with their exploitation of their victims for dollars is loathed and considered filthy lucre. I don't know if that's how that's pronounced, but that's how it said it was pronounced by the men here. Yes, there are different degrees of hell, and Bonin and Bittaker are, for the most part, treated as pariahs. Having a life sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years, Norris could have been considered for parole in 2009. But he chose not to attend the hearing and stated that he hadn't outlined a plan for his potential release, like where he would work for or live. And his absence led to the n- denial of parole, which meant he would have to wait an additional 10 years before another hearing, which would have been ni- in 2019. Yeah. He-, he served his sentence in Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County, California. I know nothing about that place. Nope. While the cells were originally designed for one prisoner each, overcrowding led to many cells holding two prisoners. Bittaker was interviewed by Jamie Schramm for Bizarre Magazine in 2007. When he was questioned about watching the movie Silence of the Lambs, which used Bittaker's case for research, he responded, quote, I've seen bits of it, but those kind of movies don't appeal to me. I have no interest in murder mysteries or sexual assault mysteries. I can't relate to that movie. It's too wacky. When questioned about his motivation for the crimes, Bittaker responded, quote, I'm going to tell you the truth. My psychosexual development stopped when I first got incarcerated at 16. I've spent 40 of my 65 years in jail. It destroyed my social and sexual development. I never had a normal upbringing. I don't hate women. I can't understand raping an 80-year-old woman. You're raping someone who's unattractive. Something is screwy about that. But I can understand the rape of an attractive girl who turns you on. I love girls, young and attractive. My fantasy is a girl screaming, but because of pleasure. Uh, that audio tape tells me otherwise. My whole life, I had no woman who loved me because you acted horribly. <clears throat> and that's what I wanted so bad. That's why I took the girls into the mountains. That's not how you get love, dipshit. Bittaker responded when asked about what happened during Lamp and Gilliam's murders. Quote, Roy was the one who got excited about having sex. I kind of stumbled into it. Technically, it was rape. They were snatched off the street and tied up. But we treated them well. We partied with them, gave them food, smoked marijuana, and drank. Given the circumstances, it was the most friendly situation. I'm the local friendly rapist. He's had too much time to sit around and think. Yeah, I'm the local friendly rapist. Okay, sure. (laughs) Wow. I I beg to differ, but I'm sure your families of your victims also think otherwise. But you just keep being delusional. What an odd thing to say. Yeah. He really enjoyed it. This wasn't even the only interview. He had many interviews. He also mentioned being neighbors with Richard Ramirez while in prison for a while and that he traded autographs with him. When questioned about feeling remorse for killing the girls, he responded, Yes, yes, yes. How many times do I have to tell you? Nobody is going to believe it. I'm not happy I got caught. Dude, that's not remorse. That's just, I'm not happy I got caught. He even said it. Yeah, that's not remorse. But I already... A little bit about Bittaker's... It's a regret, not a remorse. Yeah. A little bit about his psychiatric history... He showed signs of mental illness early on, which likely was 
influenced by his extensive criminal activities. Do you mean influence them or he was influenced? Uh, yeah, influence them, sorry. The criminal activity. In 1961, during incarceration, a psychiatric evaluation labeled him borderline psychotic and paranoid, but he was released in 1963 without treatment. And at this time, the treatment probably wouldn't have done very much. We did to say help. this last time, right? Yeah. Okay, I was making sure. Yeah, I'm just kind of going over more of it. Okay. In 1964, he was back in prison and diagnosed as borderline psychotic and then reevaluated as a classic sociopath, later labeled as sophisticated psychopath. 1974, Bitteker was arrested after stabbing the supermarket employee and forensic psychiatrist Dr. Robert Markman during the pretrial interview deemed Bitteker a classic sociopath incapable of learning rules prone to escalating criminal behavior. He concluded that Bitteker was highly dangerous, lacked internal controls over impulses, the potential for escalating to more serious crimes, and he described him as someone who could kill without hesitation or remorse and mentioned that Bitteker was beyond any rehabilitation treatment known at the time. Seems about right. In 1977, prison psychiatrists agreed with Dr. Markman and predicted that Bitteker would likely commit more crimes if released, despite being described as a sophisticated psychopath with guarded prospects for successful parole. He was released in 1978. Borderline psychosis is usually called borderline personality disorder now, with psychosis. It involves difficulty being alone, intense moods, and unstable relationships due to impulsivity. Under stress, individuals may experience distorted beliefs and perceptions, possibly leading to a break in reality. Experts link this disorder to biological and environmental factors, including childhood neglect or abuse, but new research hints at a link between difficulty managing moods and controlling anxiety from within. Pretty much, I think that means they were born with it. Nature versus nurture. Mm. Some of the symptoms are difficult and unstable relationships, self-destructive behavior, impulsive behavior, poor self-image, self-mutilation, suicidal attempts or threats, extreme mood reactions, fear of abandonment, and feelings of loneliness or emptiness. A borderline personality disorder is a lifelong challenge but ongoing research is leading to better outcomes. Some studies indicate that symptoms tend to decrease with age. I, I don't know. Just as they calm down naturally. Yeah. Maybe they just don't have the energy. Many individuals with this disorder see significant improvement in their symptoms and overall quality of life with appropriate treatments. Yeah. Makes sense. The differences between psychopaths and sociopaths is both lack a strong sense of right and wrong and struggle to empathize with others. The key distinction lies in conscience. Sociopaths generally have a weak conscience, feeling some guilt but not enough to deter the harmful behavior, whereas psychopaths lack a conscience entirely and show no remorse, though they can pretend to feel guilty if it serves their agenda. Both lack empathy, but psychopaths exhibit even less regard for others' feelings and view people as tools for personal gain. Psychopaths are more challenging to identify than the sociopaths. They often possess charm and intelligence and excel at pretending emotions and interests. So pretty much they're it's odd. good the actors. One, the ones who kind of care a little bit are easier to find. Yeah. 
Psychopaths carefully plan their actions, and if aggression is necessary, they will strategize it in advance. New studies indicate a physical distinction in the brains of psychopaths compared to regular individuals. Found it interesting that this book that I mentioned the title before and it should be in the show note descriptions happened to have this extra information, and I found it interesting, so I decided to include it. There was actually more than what I put in here about a sexual sadist as well, but I didn't add that into this because... <laughs> already had it, enough. Yeah, if you want to look into that, uh, you can find the book on Kindle Unlimited or you can purchase it. New studies indicate a physical distinction in the brains of psychopaths compared to regular individuals. I already said that. It affects certain body functions. A typical person exposed to violence or blood results in faster heartbeat, increased breathing, and sweaty palms. Whereas psychopaths exhibit the opposite reaction and they become calmer when confronted with the same images. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What if it's a survival evolution will all eventually become psychopaths? Hmm. Calmer in a lot of stressful situations usually is a better outcome. Yeah, it's, it's probably with the way things are going these days. That's probably where it's heading. Think clearly how to get out of the situation instead of just uh, panicking about it. Yeah. It might be better for your survivability, but look what it does to you as a person sometimes. Yeah. Back to the old savage days where skinning people alive is appropriate punishment. It's called flaying, I believe. Yes, flaying. That's the word. Going into Norris's psychiatric history, he was diagnosed with a severe schizoid personality during his time in the Navy, which led to his discharge due to the seriousness of the condition. Also, he started attacking women. This was probably made worse due to his substance abuse. Schizoid personality disorder involves limited emotions, social detachment, difficulty forming close relationships, and typically appears in early adulthood. Individuals with this disorder often become loners. They prefer jobs where they get to be alone, obviously. And despite struggling with human connections, they can form strong bonds with animals. Am I a sociopath? I thought you said schizoid. Is that what I said? Oh, yes. Am I schizophrenic? I don't know. Maybe the whole family is. Oh. That's horrible. Every one of us prefer to be alone. Or with animals. Mm-hmm. Oh, darn. They tend to daydream excessively while staying connected to reality. And symptoms are they don't want relationships even with the relatives. They take pleasure in very few, if any, activities. They appear detached and distant and avoid socializing, which I don't blame them for that one. They enjoy activities where they can be alone. And what's wrong with that? Those are the best kinds of activities. They don't really care about what people say, whether it's good or bad. To me, that sounds like a great way to stay happy or at least at peace. Sticks and stones and all that stuff. Yeah. And they're emotionally distant and show little change in mood. I relate to quite a few of that one, sadly. Yeah, me too. Um, which makes me wonder. Yeah. We never do go to counseling, so it's hard to tell. Yeah. Maybe we'll get a sponsorship for that counseling app. That's, I've looked into it, and even with the discount, I still can't afford it. And that's the only one I would do because I'm too terrified to go in person to talk to someone. I tried it once, and I went to one session, and then I ran away by the time the second one came around. And I I went to the river. I was like, no, I can't. I can't do it because they told me I couldn't bring mom back in. And I was like, then I ain't doing it. I can't. It's terrifying for me. So I would much rather have someone I could... Preferably message, but if necessary, I guess have a phone call with. Well, I can't Otherwise, afford- it's just not happening for me. 
there's psychological phases in serial killing. Psychologist Joel Norris conducted 500 interviews with convicted killers. In 1988, while working on defense teams for serial killers, he identified and described psychological phases. The aura phase, first phase that involves a withdrawal from reality. The senses are heightened. They can last from moments to months. It's often initiated by a pre-existing fantasy, which may have been active for years. And killers will usually self-medicate with drugs or alcohol during this time. Then there's phase two, the trolling phase. It identifies and stalks intended victims, for example, Ted Bundy faking an arm injury to get a woman to help him load items into his car. Mm-hmm. I feel like this phase, phase three, could have been named something different. It's called the wooing phase. <laughs> and that just makes me think romantic, and this shouldn't be romantic. Not at all. But I also couldn't think of my own word for that to make it less romantic. There was a... Crushing? Grooming, but when you say grooming, I think of children, and some of these don't involve children. So I really don't know. But I really think they should find another word for that. This is the phase where they gain the victim's trust before leading them into the trap to kill them. It's exactly what wooing is, besides the killing. So No, I feel like wooing is supposed to be romantic, not kill them. Yeah. Anyway, then there's the capture phase. It's when the killer has successfully captured their victim, the murder phase, which is the ritualistic reenactment of a traumatic experience from the killer's past. But the roles are reversed. I think it depends on the serial killer. It sounds like it's reaching for something. Yeah, I think this one depends. Phase six, the totem phase. Collecting things. After the murder, killer experiences a period of depression, and to remember their success, they may collect trophies, pictures, jewelry, clothes, and worst cases, body parts. Ah, yes, Dahmer. Yeah. These are used to trigger the same feelings of thrill and power they felt when they murdered the victim. And then there's the depression phase, which they come to understand that their past wounds are not likely to be healed by killing their victim. All that work for nothing. Yeah. Even after killing the victim, they are still haunted by the memories of the one who hurt them in the past. Before their fantasies start again, some of them will confess during this time. Yeah. Norris said about the post-homicidal depression, quote, The killer is simply acting out ritualistic fantasy, but once sacrificed, the victim's identity within the murderer's own fantasy is lost. The victim no longer represents what the killer thought he or she represents. The image of a fiancé who rejected the killer, the echo of the voice of the hated mother, or the taunting of the distant father, all remain vividly in the killer's mind after the crime. Murder has not erased or changed the past because the killer hates himself even more than he did before the climax of the emotion. It is only his own past that is acted out. He has failed again. Instead of reversing the roles of his childhood, the killer has just reinforced them, And by torturing and killing a defenseless victim, the killer has restated his most intimate tragedies. That was a mouthful. In the end, December 13th, 2019, Bitteker passed away from natural causes at 4 p.m. at age 79 while still on death row at San Quentin. Well, that led nowhere. February 24th, 2020. Norris passed away in the California Medical Facility two months after Bitteker's death at age 72. It's like they were meant to be together. And I think his was natural causes as well. 
that's the end of it. Well, that was nice. Well, not nice. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I just didn't know exactly where to make it three episodes. I didn't know good places to stop for the second one. That's why it's only two. Well, this is your sample. We'll go back to normal things next week and then start working on the subscription stuff. And we'll wait a few days to see if any emails come in about uh, ideas for editing or unediting certain things. It's up to you to let us know. Otherwise, we'll just continue editing as usual. Oh, apologies. I realized the email we've been giving you had not been showing up in the link tree. So I fixed that. Uh, the description will not have proper emails. I just never thought to test it. My bad. There's two there now. Feel free to reach out to either one. Just say who you want to talk to. Like I said, the link in the description is link tree link. It'll take you to all of our socials, YouTube channel, Twitch, and all that stuff. If you want to see us anywhere, do anything, check us out there. Reach out there. If you don't want to send us an email, the emails should be directly in the description, though, under the link tree link. Anything else for you to say, Beth? No, I think I've said enough for this. All right. Well, thank you for listening. I've been Ramey. And I've been Beth. And this has been HH&H. Bye-bye. <laughs>